Well, good morning. Can you hear me okay? Somebody told me this morning that uh, the good thing about me preaching is that uh, I don't necessarily need the microphone. (laughs) That's not the first time somebody's told me I had a big mouth, but uh, it's a joy to be with you again. And um, it's not often that uh, you see somebody bring an Etch-A-Sketch up into the pulpit. I'll, uh, I'll get to that in just a minute. But I wanted to start off just by asking you, uh, how many people were here last week? Wasn't that a great worship service? Amen. Absolutely wonderful. I thank God for, for what He did. If you weren't here last week, it was uh, nothing short of phenomenal in my estimation. We uh, had, I think, over half the church come down to the altar at uh, the conclusion of the sermon. And we prayed together. And I think the Lord really uh, bound our hearts together last week. Um, like many, many people had been praying for him to do. And uh, after the worship service um, concluded, I had several people uh, come up to me and uh, shake my hand, hug my neck, and we had a great time of uh, fellowship after, after the sermon was preached. And I kid you not, it was during that time of greeting that the Lord laid this message on my heart. He just dropped in my heart the phrase, a clean slate. I had no idea necessarily what that meant, so I had to go home and ponder and meditate and really build on that idea and say, Lord, what are you wanting to say to Moundsville Baptist Church? And I think that the message this week is going to build on that. Last week, I preached from Mark chapter 10 about blind Bartimaeus on the concept of brokenness. And I believe last week at the altar, we were joined and knit and bound together by brokenness. Would you agree with that? And so this week... I believe that the Lord wants us to bind our hearts together in forgiveness, unity, and fundamentally, in relationship. I want to conclude this morning's sermon uh, in just a few minutes. I'll try not to keep you here longer than two or three hours. Uh, (laughs) No, I'm going to conclude this morning's sermon with uh, the greatest desire of my heart as a shared by A.W. Tozer, but I wanted to uh, start off just by showing you one of my favorite toys as a young man. How many know what this is? You ever seen one of these before? It's an Etch-A-Sketch. It's beautiful. I have done some, (laughs) to say the least, rudimentary art on there. It's just a bunch of squares and lines. Uh, I mean, when you think about the greatest children's toys of the last 50 years, I mean, you have to think about G.I. Joe, Barbie... Uh, when I was growing up, He-Man was pretty big. Uh, when I was a little kid, I had Hot Wheels also. Probably my favorite toy growing up was a wiffle ball and bat because I just knew I was going to play Major League Baseball for the Cincinnati Reds. But I think you've got to put Etch-A-Sketch up at the top of the list. And, you know, the great thing about an Etch-A-Sketch is that you can draw pretty much anything you want if you have the coordination. Uh, you turn this knob and... The cursor goes one way, and then you turn this knob, and the cursor goes another way, and you make beautiful, or maybe less than beautiful, art as you turn these knobs. But the coolest thing about an Etch-A-Sketch is that whenever you mess up, what do you do? Yeah. You turn it over, and you shake it real hard, and voila, you've got a clean slate. And you know... I believe that this is exactly what the Lord was dropping into my heart last week as I was shaking hands and hugging necks with people here at Moundsville Baptist Church. 
You know, last week, last week we were bound together in brokenness. This week, I believe that we need to take intentional and serious strides to bind our hearts together in relationship and forgiveness and in unity. And that's going to take place, brothers and sisters, when we are willing to acknowledge the fact that, yes, in God's family, maybe there have been people who have hurt me or disappointed me or done things that I did not necessarily agree with. But you know what? Just like every day when I wake up, the Bible says in Lamentations 3:23 or 24, every morning His mercies are fresh. Every morning God gives me a clean slate. And I need to be willing, just like I desire to receive a clean slate every single morning, I need to be willing to give out that clean slate to my brothers and sisters. How many of you here need a clean slate today? I need a clean slate. If you didn't raise your hand, you're fibbing. I'm going to tell you that up front. <laughs> we all need a clean slate. Now, I'll never forget this. My hermeneutics professor in Bible college said one time he preached a sermon on Romans 3.23 that says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So when I point the finger at you and say, You're a dirty, rotten, rotten filthy sinner. Well, there's... said you are. And she said, well, the Apostle Paul never met me. <laughs> Whew. Boy, I'd be careful with that. Because the bottom line is, we all need a clean slate. Now, I believe at this point in our church's history, we need to utilize a spiritual etch-a-sketch with one another. Because from this point forward, we need to move together with a clean slate. Now, folks, before we dive into the text this morning, I want to tell you that I have prayed for Moundsville Baptist Church to move forward with the supernatural love of God functioning as our spiritual superglue that holds everyone together. You know, I desire to be a part of a church that is more than just a group of people that get together on Sunday mornings and sing songs and Study a book. I need you. I need you. I need people that speak into my life. I need people who love me. Not just with a human kind of love, but with a supernatural agape kind of love. I know that in the next several seasons and years of my life, folks, I'm going to go through struggles. I'm a broken person. I'm going to go through difficulties and I need people who will inevitably see me at my worst and still, by the grace of God, believe the best about me. That's what I need. And I believe that that's what you want too. And I want you to know, folks, that our church last week spoke with their actions far louder than they spoke with their words. And last week we said, yes, we are broken and we are bound together in that brokenness. And I believe last week our church made a decision to move forward together. And I want to warn you 
not just encourage you, but I want to warn you firmly and without apology. If you have a history of being a troublemaker in our church, the beautiful thing is this morning you have a clean slate available to you. But if you do not get on board with the church unity that is being promoted and embraced by our leadership and our membership as a whole, this church will, with a broken heart, move forward without you on board. We want everyone on board, but it's up to you. To do your part. For some of us, that means that we need to be less vocal and repent. For others, that means perhaps we need to be more vocal and repent of silence. Amen? D.L. Moody once said, What Christians need is to be united in brotherly love, and then they may expect to have power. So, I'm talking a lot up here about unity and relationship and forgiveness. Obviously, you must be asking the question, well, I want to be unified with my brothers and sisters. I want to be united in the way that you're talking about, but how do I do that? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And believe it or not, you've got an outline there in your bulletin. It looks pretty lengthy, but really, uh, this morning's sermon, while there are probably a dozen sub-points, is really only two major points. So I want to give you two ways that God is calling us as a church to be united with one another. You know, uh, I'm from the state of Kentucky, and yesterday, oh, we came within four yards of beating the Florida Gators for the first time in 30 years. Whew, buddy. And I don't, I don't even get the SEC network in Bethlehem. I was on my iPad and phone last night hitting refresh, 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 trying to figure out whether or not we were going to kick that field goal. Uh, but being from Kentucky, our state motto is real simple. We got it from Abraham Lincoln. United we stand, divided we fall. And I could have very easily titled this morning's sermon, United We Stand. But I believe that the Etch-a-Sketch illustrates what we need to think about in our minds and hearts with a clean slate. So how do we give and receive a clean slate with our brothers and sisters and live together in unity? Well, Paul, the Apostle Paul first of all says in verses 1 and 2 to practice humility with one another. Now look at what he says here in verses 1 and 2. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, to walk worthy of the calling which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Now, Paul is, is uh, telling us here to practice humility with one another, and he gives us specifics. And the first thing he tells us about humility is that humility is a matter of balance. There in verse 1, he tells us, to walk worthy of our callings. Now, in order to understand what Paul means by telling us to walk worthy, you really have to understand uh, the entire book of Ephesians. Because if you were to take the book of Ephesians and to outline it, the book of Ephesians would be just like my sermon this morning. There's two main points or two main sections. 
The first three chapters is all about doctrine. The last three chapters is all about duty. Paul spends the first three chapters telling us about our riches in Christ. He spends the last three chapters telling us about our responsibilities for Christ. And so, really, the first three chapters is truth. The last three chapters are application. Now, that word worthy, when he tells us to walk worthy, it's translated from the Greek Greek word axios, which is an adjective that symbolizes to raise the other side of the scales. If you have a scale and one part of it is up here and the other part is down here, how are you going to get this part down here to raise up and come into balance with the other side? Well, you have to put weight on the other side in order to balance those scales. Well, what Paul is in in essence telling us is that our practice needs to match our profession. In other words, he's saying, in light of all the truth that I've given you in the first three chapters, now I want to tell you how to live out that truth so that your practice matches your profession. And it's interesting because the very first thing that he emphasizes in how to live out our truth in Christ, our riches in Christ, is he tells us to practice humility with one another. And so humility is a matter of balance. Balancing our practice with our profession. And so that leads us inevitably to a specific question. Well, if I'm going to practice what I preach, how do I do that? And verse 2 shows us that humility is also a matter of behavior. And so Paul tells us how to treat one another. He says, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Now, that word lowliness can be translated humility. The word meekness in the King James Version is actually translated gentleness in the New King James Version, and it indicates its power under control. And so what Paul is instructing us to do here is to have an attitude that is conducive to relationship. And if you want my honest opinion, this is the fundamental ingredient that is missing in so many of our churches today. I would be willing to bet that over 90% of the people in this congregation probably come to church on Sunday mornings, but rarely see people at any other time of the week outside of what's going on in church. There's nothing necessarily wrong with being involved with people here at the church building. But folks, I'm telling you, we're called to have relationships that supersede a geographic location. If we are united in Christ, we ought to have a brotherly love and affection that goes beyond these four walls where we actually have people who know what's going on in our lives and can speak into our lives. I mean, that's the supernatural relationship that we're called to have. But the the biggest dysfunction in America, I mean, we talk all the time about the external things that the Pharisees talked about. Well, you know, uh, since I've never uh, cheated on my wife and committed adultery with my wife, I must be sexually pure. And Jesus says, no. You may have never been divorced and you may have never committed adultery, but if you look upon someone with lust in your heart, you're an adulterer at heart. 
And so we can talk about the symptoms all day long. We can talk about divorce. We can talk about the breakdown of the family. But fundamentally, it's a heart issue. Because your relationships are rooted in a matter of the heart. And so, who are we in Christ? Paul tells us in the first three chapters of Ephesians, we are accepted in the Beloved. We have every spiritual blessing. We are part of a a building uh, being built together with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. While we were dead in our sins and trespasses, He gave us His grace and we are saved by grace through faith, and that not of, of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And we uh, are able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think through God the Father. And He gives us all this truth. And then He tells us, in light of all this beautiful spiritual wealth that has been entrusted to us, you need to apply that with how you treat one another. I don't want to belabor this point, but I think it's important that we really understand what Paul is calling us to. Because you know something? Every one of us in this church this morning, we have preferences and desires. I think one of the biggest questions surrounding unity is at what point is it appropriate to let go of our preferences for the good of the body of Christ? And you know, that can be a tricky balance to practice because unity is a matter, or humility is a matter of balance and behavior. Because, for instance, let's say that an unrepentant Jehovah's Witness or Mormon were to come into Moundsville Baptist Church and say, you know what? I want to be a part of your church. I want to join this church. Well, there is no... I mean, everybody's welcome here at church, but membership requires allegiance to Jesus Christ in a biblical and historically orthodox sense. There's a reason that we refer to Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons as cults not, I mean, we, I'm not even trying to be mean about that. I'm just telling you, it's true. They're cults. They believe heretical doctrine. And folks, heresy will send you straight to hell. And so we cannot allow that in our church. And so if somebody were to come in and say, well, you know what, I'm a Jehovah's Witness and I'm not going to back down from that, but I want to be a part of your church. You know what? That is not just a preference. That's a conviction. And so we can't bend on that. But now when we talk about what song are we going to sing on Sunday morning? Well, we've got about 600 in the hymnal. Who's to say what's right and what's not? Okay? I mean, we entrust those decisions to other people. And I'm not... Look, I love just about all those hymns. And there's some of them that I like better than others. But I am not about to say to somebody who doesn't want to sing hymn number four, well, you're a heretic. You need to re-examine your faith. You see where I'm coming from? I'm using hyperbole here. I'm using extremism to make a point. But you see, there's some things that we can't budge on, but there's other things that we can budge on. And so you say, well, how do I know the difference? Well, I'm not going to get into all this, but I'm just going to tell you there's a concept, and I'll give you some homework. There's a concept 
called theological triage, and that's going to be my application for this point. Suppose you were to have three people with injuries go into an emergency room. One of them had a broken leg. The other one had a deep laceration on their arm. And the other one had a hangnail. How do they determine who gets treated first? Well, there's a concept called triage. And they categorize these doctrines in accordance with the urgency or the severity and the importance of the injury. So the broken leg is going to get treated first. The laceration on the arm is going to get treated next. And if somebody's crazy enough to go to the ER for a hangnail, that's going to go last. All right? Well, I'm telling you, doctrinally, there are three different categories of doctrine that Christian doctrine falls under. First-level doctrines separate orthodoxy from heresy. All right, so a first-level doctrine would be the exclusivity of the gospel, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only way to heaven. These are first-tier issues, and we cannot compromise on those. Second-tier issues are uh, doctrines that divide denomination from denomination. Methodists believe in sprinkling. All right, now, when I read the Bible, I'm telling you, I stand on a firm conviction that we ought to be fully immersed. I mean, we got to be dumped, okay? I mean, fully, because every time you see somebody baptized in the Bible, and if the Bible is the authority of our faith and practice, don't you think we ought to do what the Bible says, right? So every time you see somebody baptized in Scripture, it says they come up out of the water. All right? So I firmly believe that baptism is by full immersion. Our Baptist brothers and sisters, I'm not saying or our Methodist brothers and sisters, practice sprinkling. Notice I didn't say those Methodist heretics. Methodists, historically, are Orthodox Christians. All right? Now, we, as a church, have said, you know what? Baptism is by full immersion. And if you want to join this church, you better get all the way wet. Amen? But you know what I can do with a Methodist? While a Methodist who sprinkles may not want to come and join this church, you know what I can do with a Methodist? I can extend my arm and say, you know what? John Smith down at 116 Main Street is lost. And he needs the gospel. We preach the same gospel if they believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, if they don't compromise on fundamental doctrines. And so second-tier issues divide denominations. Third-tier issues, like the hangnail, can separate people even in the same Sunday school class, and they can disagree or agree to disagree. You know what? I, there's a lot of uh, pastors and churches within our association who believe in a premillennial, uh, pre-tribulation rapture. And that's good. That's good. I happen to believe in a... I lean, I guess, toward a post-tribulational rapture. Why? Because I interpret Matthew 24 chronologically. Alright? Now, here's the thing. No matter where you fall on the spectrum of the timing of the rapture, 
You can disagree on that and still go to heaven. In fact, you can disagree on that, I believe, and still be in the same Sunday school class. You see, why, why am I bringing this up? Because I'm telling you, ultra-conservative Christians over the course of the last 100 or 200 years have become so prone to legalism and so prone to preserve truth that we become legalistic and we lapse into this fallacy of making every doctrine a first-tier issue. Harza, you believe in a post-tribulational rapture? Well, you're, a, you're going to hell. I mean, there are some people who believe that. And I'm telling you, if I read the Bible with any sense of balance and rationale, I'm telling you, even Peter and Paul disagreed on some things. I'm going to let you in on a little secret, folks. No two people on planet Earth have the exact same theology across the board. And so we have to learn what is a first-tier issue and what is a second-tier issue, and what is a third-tier issue, because if we don't understand that, we become prone to disunity and division. And if there's... I mean, it's not a secret that Paul opens up the book of Ephesians and spends three whole chapters talking about doctrine, because truth is fundamental. But when we misapply truth, we become vulnerable to the subtle deceptions of the devil. And so what I'm trying to do, I'm not trying to talk over your head. I'm trying to educate you here so that you understand, where do I draw the line? And you see, there's a fallacy here. If we think that every doctrine is a first-tier doctrine, we, we become prey for the devil to make us arrogant. <laughs> I can show you in the Bible why full immersion is a biblical doctrine. But you know something that's more important than me being right in that doctrine? If there's a lost soul on Main Street who is in danger of hell, and I've got a Methodist brother or sister who says, I need you to come with me. Well, you know, if I'm going to die on the hill of the mode of baptism and forsake this lost soul, I'm telling you, by my estimation and in my humble opinion, I think I've missed it, folks. I think I've missed it. That's why we have to be educated and informed so that we can make decisions regarding what is a first-tier doctrine, what is a second-tier doctrine, and what is a third-tier doctrine. Do you understand where I'm coming from? And you see, if I... If I if I don't have lowliness and gentleness as my attitude when I talk to somebody from another denomination or somebody from another church, well, you know what I'm going to do? I, I'm going to fall prey to the devil and I'm going to thump the Bible with arrogance. Well, bless God, you may want to go save that soul, but you're just a dirty, rotten, filthy Methodist. And uh, let, me, let me open up and show you 312 different verses as to why you're wrong, you heretic. Is that lowliness and gentleness? Is that practicing humility with one another? 
Now, if it was a Jehovah's Witness who wanted me to come and share the doctrine of Jehovah's Witnesses, very politely and lovingly, I would say, I can't do that with you. Let me tell you about the real Jesus Christ. Not in an arrogant sense. Not in an insulting sense. But with a love for the other person's soul. Do you understand the balance that I'm trying to strike here this morning? And I'm telling you, if we as a church do not strike that balance, we will be divided in disunity until we learn how to evaluate. What is, a, what is the category of a specific doctrine? Well, you know, there are some people I've met who share the attitude of George Bernard Shaw. He once said, The longer I live, the more I see that I am never wrong about anything. And that all the pains I have so humbly taken to verify my notions have only wasted my time. <laughs> you ever met anybody in church like that? I'm telling you, when some people prioritize their preferences or their third-tier doctrines and make them first-tier issues, folks, that is a recipe for disunity. I'm not preaching compromise this morning. I am certainly not doing I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Paul says, balance your... ...with one another. Is there anyone sitting in this church right now who has hurt you by applying their preferences as a first-tier doctrine. Maybe you're here this morning and you have pushed your preferences on another member of this congregation. I want you to know that it is a, from my perspective, it's a reasonable mistake that we could all make. Wouldn't you agree? It absolutely is. And I thank God that there are some people who are so full of conviction that they're ready to stand on the truth. Misguided as they may be, making a third-tier doctrine, a first-tier doctrine. Thank God that we've got people in our congregation willing to stand on truth. Amen? But now, if God is convicting your heart and you have pushed your preferences inadvertently on somebody, now is the time to plead with God and the brothers and sisters that you love. And say, oh, Lord, give me a clean slate. Brother or sister so-and-so, give me a clean slate. I've wronged you. And you know what? Any Christian worth their salt who practices lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering and is willing to bear with you in love, I guarantee you, they'll extend you the clean slate that you need. Amen? Practice humility with one another. Now, Paul gives us a second a second uh, step in the recipe for unity. And this is in verses uh, 3 through 6. And here, Paul tells us not only to practice humility with one another, but he also says preserve harmony with one another. Look at what he says in verse 3. Endeavoring, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, here in verse 3, Paul is showing us that unity is a biblical desire. Alright? I'm telling you, if you come to church 
with the motive and intent to show everybody how holy you are and how right you are and how wrong they are, whew, that is not what Paul's saying. All right? Paul says endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. He's not talking about, well, I think that I'll put my arm around my brother or sister when it's convenient. As long as they don't tick me off too bad, I think that I'll be there for them. Well, no. And you know, you don't hear this message a lot in a lot of ultra-conservative churches because sometimes we falsely equivocate unity with compromise. Well, that's not what Paul's saying here. I think it's interesting. After Paul spends three whole chapters telling us the truth about our position in Christ, the very first application he makes is how we treat one another, and he exhorts us to be unified. Unity is a biblical desire. And if you don't desire to be united with other brothers and sisters in Christ, as my brother Josh said this morning in Sunday school, I think that's an opportunity for us to check our faith. And I'll even go a step further. I believe deep within every heart in this congregation is a desire to be unified and deeply in intimate connection and fellowship with a group of people that we know has our back no matter what. And personally, I think anybody with any sort of thinking skills whatsoever has to read the New Testament and what went on with the early church and then they look at what we do and how we practice church and how we do church and they've got to say, there's something missing. There's something missing. Because what I read in the book of Acts is not necessarily how it goes down and it's not just at Moundsville Baptist Church. I think it's in Churches all, not just all across the county, all over the nation and all over the world. Something's missing, right? And you know what I think that ingredient is? I think the ingredient is relationship. You know, people say this all the time. Jesus Christ changed the world. <laughs> That's true. He is my King. He is my Lord. He's my Savior. He's our King. We worship Him. And so that's true. But did you ever think about that? And I know this is going to sound like heresy. Let me explain. There's an element in which that's not true. It's not really Jesus who changed the world. He spent three and a half years investing in 12 people. He gave the mission to them. Now, it was His power that changed the world, but He did it through the 12 men that He relationally invested in. You ever think about that? I just want you to know, you know how I know the power of relationship? Not just because of what it says in the Bible, but because I've experienced. You know the best kept secret in Moundsville Baptist Church? And I'm going to give props to the people I've been doing life with. The young adult Sunday school class at Moundsville Baptist Church has absolutely gone through a revitalization and transformation. And you may not even know it. We've got couples in there who really weren't even attending Sunday school last year. And you know what they're doing now? They're leading the teaching. They're taking turns teaching. They're launching ministries. How many people have ever heard of the Mops ministry? 
hey, you know who's launching that? Ray Farber, with the help of the other ladies in that young adult Sunday school class. You know what? I am proud as I could be to be in fellowship with these people who have experienced a transformation in their life, and now they're launching ministries. And you know what I think the secret of it was? It was relationship. We would come together every Sunday morning, and I'm an old stickler, okay? I have fundamentalist tendencies. I thought, you know what? We ought to show up on time. We ought to take five minutes of prayer requests. And then, glory to God, we ought to spend 55 minutes in the Word. Well, you know what God showed me? Some of these ladies didn't get any adult conversation throughout the week. And so when we got together on Sunday mornings, they needed to talk and air some things out. You know, we would spend half of our class just talking about how we needed to pray for one another. And you know what? God blessed that. Because there's some things, relationally, that you may not be able to get in exegeting and conjugating Greek verbs, but that relationship will strengthen you internally and spiritually. I think the revival that has taken place in the young adult Sunday school class at Moundsville Baptist Church is rooted in Christ-centered, discipleship-focused relationship. Did you even know that that was taking place in that class? I want to challenge you this morning. And this is not a a finger-wagging condemnation that I'm pointing at you, but if you didn't know that was going on, that just underscores my point that change needs to happen here. Because if there's any group of people in this church that need the wisdom and experience and mentorship of you leaders who are seasoned and older, it's that group. Because, let's face it, some of y'all ain't going to last very much longer. Now listen, I'm not saying that with any motive of disrespect. But I'm telling you, look, let's look at it from a common sense perspective. Don't you want the rich heritage of this church and the wonderful ministry of this church to continue on? Amen? Well, I do. I've only been here a year. Do you? I do. And I'm telling you, I'm ready for people. Look, I might have a position where I minister to 22 different churches across 10 counties in three states. I don't, look, I don't... That, that's nothing. I need you. And those aren't just words. I need you. You have something to invest into me, just like I have something that I can invest in you. That's why Paul tells us to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace that is rooted in relationships, but relationships don't take place a lot of times in ultra-fundamentalist and ultra-conservative congregations because throughout our history, there's been a culture of fear that has been propagated. I might do something wrong. Well, I don't want so-and-so to be mad at me. Oh, so-and-so always stands up and causes a ruckus at the business meeting. I sure don't want to offend anyone. That is not the New Testament model for church. Paul is saying we need to bear with one another. We need to have humility and gentleness with one another. We need to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
not compromising truth. He spent three chapters talking about truth. I'm not talking about compromise, but I'm talking about relationally. Not allowing our bond to be broken. Do you hear what I'm saying? Unity is a biblical desire. But you know, Paul takes it one step further. He says unity is not just a biblical desire. It is a biblical doctrine. He spends three verses explaining how unity is a doctrine that is rooted in the Holy Trinity. Who are the members of the Trinity? You've got God the Father. You've got God the... And you've got God the... Holy Spirit. It's no accident that Paul uses the Trinity as a basis for the doctrine of unity because unity is found in the Trinity. Don't we always say that the members of the Trinity are co-equal and co-eternal? Well, folks, I'm here to tell you that unity is eternal because the unified Godhead is eternal. You want to know a virtue that is eternal? Love and unity are eternal because they're rooted in the eternality of all three members of the Trinity. And seven different times, you know, that number seven is the biblical number of perfection or divinity. Seven different times in three verses, Paul uses the unifying qualifier, one. One spirit, one body, one hope. One faith, one baptism, one Lord, one God and Father of all. Seven different times he uses the the qualifier one, showing us that in the Godhead, unity is a biblical doctrine. And in doing so, he gives us three different doctrinal truths. He starts with the Holy Spirit, and then in verse 5 he moves up to the Son, and then in verse 6 he moves up to God the Father. Look in verse 4. Verse 4, we see that believers are a united community ordained by the Holy Spirit. Look at what he says in verse 4. He says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. So you see, we are united by the Holy Spirit. We're one body. We're all members of the same body. Now, some of you all might be a hand. Some of you all might be a foot. Some of y'all might be an armpit. I don't know. I'm just saying different people have different functions. But you know, all of the body is important. All of the body is important. And you know what? I wouldn't be able to stand up here preaching if one of my feet were gone. But how many weeks do we come here together and there's a member of the body missing... And we don't even pay attention. You see, folks, it's all about relationship. If we care about the members of the body, we're not only going to notice when somebody's gone, we're going to hurt and we're going to grieve when somebody's gone. Amen? Is there anybody in this community that you can think of that maybe you haven't seen in a long while? We were talking about a couple in our Sunday school class this morning that we needed to pray for and continue to reach out to. You know what? They may be upset and hurt and mad about something. But you know what? They might stay away. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to keep calling them. I'm going to keep inviting them out to dinner with me and Emily. I'm going to keep 
no matter how they feel. And you know something? That's the risk that we have to learn how to take. Maturing in relationships means getting over yourself. You reach out to somebody who's mad, you know what's going to happen? They might lash out at you. They might shout at you. They might get mad at you. And folks, it's uncomfortable being on the phone with somebody who might bawl you out, right? Mature relationship, being a community ordained by the Holy Spirit, means we have the power within us to get over ourselves and do the mature thing and reach out to them, right? That's what a mature community does. And so I'm just telling you, relationships are a missing ingredient in many churches. And I think we have a long way to go here at Moundsville. I'm not sitting here wagging a finger and saying, boy, y'all better get your act together. I'm saying we. Don't you think that we all have room for improvement? And I'm telling you, these cottage, this cottage prayer meeting tonight is going to be crucial. All right? Believers are a community ordained by the Holy Spirit. No. There's one body, one spirit, one hope. So we have the same Holy Spirit living within each of us. Our same hope is that we share the same expectations, promises, griefs, and destiny. The ultimate hope we have is in Titus 2.13, and that's the hope of the Lord coming back to get us, right? And so one day we're going to be with Him. Believers are a united community ordained by the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, here we see that believers are a united church overseen by Jesus Christ. Look at what he says. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So, one Lord. Who is the Lord? Jesus. Now let me ask you a trick question. Who's the head of the church? Jesus, that's right. Look, every church has human leadership, but the head of the church is Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, that if you're not afraid of the Lord, you don't have any reason to be afraid of any human being or group of human beings. All right? Your leadership is here to serve you, and we as a body, a church, are here to congregationally make decisions. Can I get a witness to that? That's the New Testament model, congregational polity. All right, now, one Lord, one faith. There's one faith. All right? There's not a multitude of faiths. All right, this goes back to some of that exclusive truth. Folks, the Muslim road will not get you to heaven. All right, the Buddhist road will not get you to heaven. The Hindu road will not get you to heaven. There is only one way to the Father, and that is through Jesus Christ. And you better have more than an agreement in your mind that He came. You better have it in your life. You better walk it out every day. It's time for us to live the relationship that we claim to have. One faith. And one baptism. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to get into that one baptism thing. There are different schools of thought. I mean, you can read 20 commentaries and get 25 different opinions on this. Some people think this is referring to full immersion baptism. Some people think that this is referring to the baptism of the Holy Spirit when you get saved. And uh, I'm just not ready to have that argument. I think it detracts from the substance of what Paul's saying here. We can argue this all day long, but I'm telling you... As long as we just relationally give away the gospel, then it will all take care of itself. Alright? I mean, it starts with giving away Jesus, the, the centerpiece of verse 5, the centerpiece of the church, the head of the church. And I'm telling you, uh, 
We're not called to give away our eschatology and we're not called to give away our ecclesiology and we're not called to give away anything other than Jesus and His Gospel. Because you can theologize and eschatologize and ecclesiologize and catechize after people get Holy Ghost baptized. Amen? Believers are a united church overseen by Jesus Christ. And then lastly, verse 6, believers are a united creation originated by God the Father. Look at verse 6. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. We see three things about God the Father here in this verse. First of all, we see God's paternity. He is the Father of all. Now, God is the creator of all of humanity, but only those people in the church saved by Jesus Christ can claim Him as their Father. We're all creations of God, but only those of us who know Him intimately and have been washed in the blood can claim Him as our Father. And so the all here, I believe, in context, since Paul is writing to a specific church at Ephesus, he's talking about he's the Father of all church members, not of all people across the world. Okay? So it's, under, it's uh, vital that we understand that. So Christians are a family with a common father. And so that means that because we are all created in the image of God, we should never try to intimidate or subvert or manipulate one another. Ever. I mean, that is not acceptable behavior in God's family. We should, we should all have an ultimate desire to empower our brothers and sisters in Christ and to see one another thrive. This is, uh, you know, this alludes to a doctrine that we call the sanctity of human life. I mean, why is abortion wrong? Because that little baby in a mother's womb was not ultimately created by uh, sperm fertilizing an egg. It was created by God the Father from the throne room of heaven. Amen? It's the sanctity of human life. And that ought to govern not only our thoughts, but our behavior. Next, we see God's position. He's the Father of all who is above all. And so that means that we don't have any right to make knee-jerk decisions without contemplative prayer and uh, cooperative conversation. I mean, it would be an arrogant individual who's not practicing the lowliness and meekness of verse 2 to say, well, I said it and that settles it. <laughs> Whoa, hold on a second. I thought we were in this thing together. <laughs> well, that's what we're alluding to here. God is the one above all. He says it and that settles it. No human authority can claim the position of God. All right? And then lastly, and this is beautiful, we see God's presence. It says He's above all and through all and in you all. Understand that when we disagree with one another, we must do it with an appropriate attitude. Because, I mean, unless you're just a very carnal individual, surely you would never walk up to God sitting on the throne room of heaven and say, Hey, Jehovah, let me tell you something, big guy. I mean, can you imagine anybody doing that? I would hope not. But He is living in each one of us. 
How dare we ever treat someone who God is living within with disrespect or disdain? You see, this doctrine really has a lot of practical application with how we treat one another. And lest you think that I'm trying to tell you something that I haven't experienced, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to give you a quick illustration. I'm going to close with a quote, and then we'll open up the altar for us to pray together. But there was a decision that this church made that I've, I, I don't know if I would say I vehemently disagreed with it. That's probably too harsh of a word, but I convictionally disagreed with that decision. And, uh, I mean, I don't want to rehash old wounds, but I'm just going to say that with almost a million dollars in the bank and uh, one of our staff members needing a raise, we voted against that. Now, I'm going to tell you this. I disagree with the church's decision on to be a part of this church. And even if I disagree with their decisions, I'm going to submit myself to the congregational authority and decision that we exercised. You know why? Because I love you. And when I took membership here at Moundsville Baptist Church, that's not something that I took lightly. That's not something that I just frivolously decided to do. I realized... And Emily and I both realized that we needed you. And even though pretty soon I'll be a member of another church and serving a denomination that you may not be officially affiliated with, nothing is going to change the fact that I love you and that I need you. And you may make further decisions down the road that I disagree with. And I want you to know that nothing will change my heart with regards to how I feel about you or how I will treat you. I may disagree with you, but I will always love you. Amen. A.W. Tozer is one of my favorite theologians. And he made a statement one time. I think he actually wrote it in a book. And I believe this is a heart's cry of every true child of God. He said, The truly spiritual man is indeed something of an oddity. He lives not for himself, but to promote the interests of another. He seeks to persuade people to give all to his Lord and asks no portion or share for himself. He delights not to be honored, but to see his Savior glorified in the eyes of men. His joy is to see his Lord promoted and himself neglected. He finds few who care to talk about that which is the supreme object of his interest. So he is often silent and preoccupied in the midst of noisy religious shop talk. For this, he earns the reputation of being dull and over-serious, so he is avoided and the gulf between him and society widens. He searches for friends upon whose garments he can detect the smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces. And finding few or none, he, like Mary of old, keeps these things in his heart. 
There may be some of us here who really yearn to have our brothers and sisters share with them a rekindled passion for the person and glory of Jesus Christ. Folks, last week we were broken together at an altar, united together in brokenness. And you know, for us to share the same interests of promoting the person, work, and glory of Jesus Christ together, we've got to get about the business of having relationship with one another. Not just seeing each other on Sunday mornings and saying, Hi, how are you doing, Brother XYZ, Sister XYZ? But actually having genuine, deep, intimate fellowship with one another. And that means that if there's somebody here who has hurt you, today, now is the time to get it right. Because God desires the glory of Jesus Christ be revealed by giving one another a clean slate. Amen. Let's stand together this morning. I want to ask you, if you would, to bow your head, close your eyes. And we're going to have a hymn of invitation. And this morning, if there's anything that the Holy Spirit has stirred your heart about, I want to give you a chance to respond to His leading. Now, if you're here and you realize that you have never become a part of this community because you have never asked Jesus Christ to forgive your sins, and you've never repented of your sins in light of His offer of grace, now is the day of salvation. But for many of us here who belong to the kingdom of God, there are rifts in relationships that God is calling us to deal with. That means that some of us will need to do something very uncomfortable and very difficult. That means coming and tapping a brother or sister on the shoulder and saying, I need to get some things right with you. I promise you, anybody led by the Spirit of God will not rebuff that advance. And so this morning, if God is dealing with you to go tap that person on the shoulder, I want to invite you to be obedient. And if God is not dealing with you in that way, let me invite you to prepare your heart. Because if somebody comes and taps you on the shoulder, you better be ready. Amen. Father, as we have this hymn of decision and invitation... I pray that you will be glorified and that you will take care of the business of the relationships of your people like you faithfully promised to do. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.